this month we've been talking about Advent and we've been thinking about um, what this season means and how special it is for us. And I'd just like to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord. God, we thank you, Lord, for this season. God, we want to go beyond the, the tradition. We, do, we want to go beyond um, what we normally do, God. But we want to just dig deep into the meaning and the riches of Christmas. God, we just pray that this Christmas would be different than all others. Father, we thank you, God, for, for your gift, Lord. We thank you, God, for the spirit of prayer. Father, we thank you, Jesus. Bless this word in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 1. And uh, thanks for bearing with us with the slides. We're just getting our act together. And I think there's, I got verses up there. Um, but I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> we're going to ver- read verses 1, 3, 5. Then we're going to go to verse 6. And then 16 and 17. You get that? <laughs> okay, we're going to, I'll just read and you just follow along. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And I want to just talk about rest, the rest that we have in the Advent, the rest that we have in Christmas, the rest that we have in Christ. First week, we spoke about joy, Advent joy. Second week, we spoke about Advent hope, right? We talked about our hope or, no, I'm sorry, light, Advent light in our internal darkness. Today, we're going to talk about rest, faith rest in the gift. And the next week, Lord willing, that can, that can change, you know, anytime. And so we're going to talk about um, next week. Um, we're going to talk next week about the um, uh, our Advent hope and the resurrection, the hope and the resurrection that Christ was born with uh, with the mission to die. And so Matthew chapter one verse one. If you look at that together with me, and it says this: This is a genealogy of of Jesus the Messiah. And I'm just going to read through this. I'm going to skip through some a little bit. But if, if you can't follow along on your Bible, just listen. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And I want you to take note of the names. This is the pur- purpose of reading this genealogy. Whose mother was Tamar. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's, Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus were the 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from exile to the Messiah. Now, this is important, these generations. I want to look at this together with you. And so this message here is going to have like three parts to it. Number one, um, good advice versus good news or great news. Number two, the moral of the story versus the finished work rest that we have. And then number three, a resume of mercy. Now, this sounds pretty curious. I was like looking through this today, and I thought, these are three things that I'd like to hit in these verses. So number one, um, it's really cool to see that Matthew doesn't begin his story with Jesus's birth by saying once upon a time, okay? I think that, like, you know, we're all used to stories. We're all used to the Disney stories. Once upon a time, there was, you know, and then the end of it, and everyone lived happily ever after. And, 
you know, this is, this, is not, this is not how Matthew begins. And remember who Matthew was. He was a tax collector. He was a bad guy. He was somebody that the Jews did not like. He was a guy that, that um, Orthodox Jews, religious Jews, nationalistic, patriotic Jews didn't like. They didn't like him. He was kind of like, he was kind of like maybe uh, an IRS agent, maybe on, on steroids. I mean, this, this was not a very nice guy. You would see him coming down the street and you'd be thinking, man, I just, how much you have to pay in your taxes that year. It's a guy that just was not necessarily welcome. And yet God had him choose, God chose to have him write the first gospel. Isn't that amazing? The people that God uses. And this is the story of the genealogy of Christ. And, you know, when we look at this, when we look at the genealogy, it doesn't begin with once upon a time. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that means he's grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in history. Jesus is not a metaphor. He's not like a superhero. He's not like a meta. He's not like this figure that, that we can look at, but he is rather a real person that really lived. He is real, and this, is all, and this all happens. The thing about the Bible is that this has all happened, and it can be backed up with so much archaeology. And so this is why it's so important, because Christmas shows us that Christianity is not good advice. It's fantastic news. Now, there's a difference between advice and good news. Advice is counsel about what you have to do. News is a report about what has already been done. Like you ever have someone talk to you, say, you know what, let me give you some advice. And when you hear the voice, it's like, okay, you're just, okay, I'm gonna listen, I'm gonna be studious, be teachable. And then you apply this, you apply this with intentionality. But advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. And this is the genealogy of Christ is an announcement of what God has done. Number two, advice urges you to make something happen. You know, when you hear advice, it's really on you, isn't it? It's like, this is on you. You got to do this. This is, here's some financial advice. Here's some, here's some marital advice. Here is the advice that, um, you know, you should, you should do. And it's, and it's urges you to make something happen. And this is, I think sometimes in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, we can get this, we can get this messed up because instead of preaching Christ, instead of preaching the good news, instead of preaching the, the it is finished, Christ has been born, historical facts, we can so easily get into advice. And I think the American mindset, we really like advice. You know, we, we're, we're wanting to get more information, more news. What can I do? Tell me what I need to do to be a better person. What, can I, what are the 10 steps I need to do to be a better husband or to be a better candidate for marriage? Tell me what to do. Give me some advice. And the Bible never gives us advice because it's something that puts the onus on you to make something happen. The news of the gospel urges us to recognize something that's already happened and to respond to it by faith. And we just hear the news. When we hear the Bible, guys, I don't know, maybe some of you have a lot of history in church, in churches. And I, I don't know about you, but before I found this ministry, you know, whenever the Bible would be opened, I'd be like, there'd be a part of me that would just cringe like, oh my gosh, is this, it's like, I, I can't do this. I can't apply this. And, and somehow you leave the church service and you're thinking, okay, I've got to really try to make this happen this week. And that maybe lasts until Monday afternoon. And then you're just kind of back to where you were at and your unbelief and just whatever's going on in your life. And, you know, the gospel, the Christmas story is not good advice. It's something that, is, that has happened. And we just need to respond to it by faith. Whenever you, hear, whenever you and I hear something in the Bible, it's like, this is impossible. That's really impossible. That's the right answer. I say, this is impossible. I cannot do this. And it's okay when you hear something because... You know, when you're learning something new for the first time, that's the first response, and it's a good response. This is impossible. I can't do it. But don't end there. Respond by faith and say, you know something? 
faithful is he who is in me, who's going to finish the work. And it's not a work that I'm supposed to finish. And I think that that's Catholicism and that's seeped into Christianity. That's, that's, like, that's like this Gnostic philosophy where, where you're handed something to do and then you're asked to, to carry it out. But the gospel, the, the, the message of Christmas is that it's already, been, it's already happened and you just need to respond to it by faith. When you and I hear something impossible or when we read the word of God and we're like, you know something, I'm failing. I, you know, that's, that's my zero point. I was sharing this with someone in the cafe. It was Monday. And um, someone who really struggles with mental illness. And he said, you know, I could just start my day and everything could be great. And then within, within one hour, I could just be going down Alice's rabbit hole. And I could just be lost in desperation into the abyss. And I said, you know something? I, I, I don't have advice for you. I can tell you, though, that the good place to start every morning is I can't do this. I can't do this Christianity. I can't, I can't do this. Every Sunday morning, I wake up, first thought, I think, Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I can't do it. I can't be a pastor. I can't do this. I can't, you know. And I said, Lord, you called me. You called us. You've called us into Christianity. Salvation was not my idea. <laughs> it was not originally a great idea with me. It was something that you called me into. And I just respond to it by faith. I just say yes. And I was just thinking about teenagers this week. And I was thinking, you know, like, <clears throat> I remember being a teenager in church. And I probably remembered one sentence out of the whole message, you know? And I know the preacher out there was working hard. He was praying. He was thinking like, <clears throat> he was like, and I just walked to him because I'm thinking about a lot of other things. And then I would just remember like one word or one sentence and that would be it. And I would walk out and I was just like, okay, I'm just going to remember that. And it's like, a, it's like, you know, it's just this one phrase. And, and if you're a young person and everything just seems so overwhelming for you, I went to Bible school the first six months. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I knew I knew on Bible. I could find Bible verses with some help of the index. But um, I just said, Lord, I'm just going to remember one thing. I'm just going to try to remember one thing. And, I, and I'm not going to sweat it. And I'm going to ask you to remind me. And I was just thinking about teens. And I was just thinking, like, you know, um, there's a lot. There's a lot, of, there's a lot on our youth today. And, and I, there's a lot of pressure I mean, really down to, I mean, my son Caleb was in a school in the Woodlands, a Montessori school. I could not believe, I mean, it was preschool. And what, I mean, this is the level of education here in Texas. It's amazing. It's great. Um, when I was in preschool, I was not learning what, what Caleb was learning in, you know. I wasn't learning that even in first grade. And I mean, just the level and the expectation that these kids are set at that, like, when they hit first grade, they want, you know, the level is like, let's get 4.0 averages all the way through and preschools to set up our kids to succeed. And there's that pressure. And I think a lot of times it's easy to do one of two things. And we said this last week, really strive to succeed. And when we succeed, there's that depression that happens because we're there and there's no, there's no spiritual fulfillment. And then, and if we fail, then there's a, there's depression after that. And that's the way it was with me growing up. And it was because I failed and there was just no content. There was no consolation there. And I just think that that as a teenager, all we can do is read the word and just say, okay, God, <clears throat> that's impossible. That is impossible. But I'm going to just say yes anyway. I'm just going to say yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. I, I'm saying yes to that crazy radical ride that you have for me called a life of faith and adventure and missions. And when I did that, I just remember God began to slowly work. And I think that sometimes when we look, when we look at the Bible, I mean, you know, the Christmas story doesn't start in Genesis. It starts most of the way through the Bible. And the reason why is, I think, 
that there was just two-thirds of the Bible, maybe, yeah. I don't know if that's an accurate ratio, but two-thirds of the Bible is preparation. You know, God is preparing for the great work. God is preparing for something amazing and that's coming to, to, to the world. And he's, he spent millennia preparing people. And I think the work of God in Christmas, the work of God in your life is preparation. Jesus lived 33 years, right? When did he start his ministry? Do you remember? Anybody? Just shout it out. 30. Yes. Okay. From 1 to 30, okay, what did he do? He was just growing up. He, he, his dad had a business. His mom... You know, we don't know where his mom, I mean, his dad wound up later on because we don't see him in the story. So there's very possible that Mary became a single mom in some ways. We don't know. But here's Jesus. You know, he's, he's a carpenter's son. He's got a business. He's just going through life. 30 years. I mean, 30 years. Kind of just under the radar, quiet, really quiet. And I mean, God is not in a rush. When we look at Christmas, we look at the story. God is not in a rush. God is not in a rush in your life. We, as people, can be so in a rush about, like, if God doesn't answer my prayer in four years, if God doesn't do something in my kid's life in four years or one year, or what, I mean, God's plan is like 30, 40 years. It could be 80 years like Moses. And I think that sometimes we just are ready to throw in the towel, and that unbelief can come in. But here's like, um, God has a plan. And you know something? I think we can just rest because, and I read it this week, it was really beautiful, is that sometimes it looks like God has forgotten to answer our prayers. Sometimes it looks like that God will not answer our prayers. But wait, because he will. God will answer. And it may take time, but when he answers, the answer will be so big that we're not going to be able to fit it in our mind. We're not going to be able to fit it in anything that we could prepare. And that's why preparation is so important. Jesus prepared. He lived 30 years. He prepared for 30 years. And he served for three. Now, if that's our Lord and Savior, that means that preparation in our life could be what? What's that percentage? Right? What's the percentage of 30 and 33? I mean, most of our life, I'm not a great mathematician, you guys can tell, right? Failed math. 30 years, I mean, that could be most of our life could be preparation. And then just a small sliver, it could just be like amazingness. Let's not wait and miss the, the opportunity that what God is doing in our life today. Today is just an amazing, it's a miracle. Because we are what we are by the grace of God today. And so when we look at the Christmas story, people have just basically thrown in a towel. 400 years, God is not talking to Israel. And then Jesus shows up. And nobody knows, like, Herod doesn't know where he is. Satan doesn't even know where. Like, Satan, like, you know, Herod's guy. I mean, Satan's guy in that region. He's like, where is this king so that we can go worship him? Like, even Satan doesn't know where he is and really understand what's going on. Because Satan didn't even realize... I love, this, I love this truth, and I've said it before, but I, I, Satan had no idea about the humility of God, that God would go this far and that God would become man. And that's, that's just so amazing. And number three, advice is all up to you to act. News is something else that someone has acted out. And here's an illustration. So say there's an invading army coming towards this little town. And, you know, I, I, maybe the, the, um, the councilman or the, town leadership is looking for military advisors. Uh, it needs advice. Um, someone could explain that earthworks and trenches go over here. You need an army. You need that. You need to set these up. This is how you need to line up your front line. Um, you know, and this is what they need. They need some great, great um, advice. Marksmen over here, tanks here, uh, preparation for war. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not 
uh, advice, information, and knowledge. It really is a declaration. However, what if a great king has intercepted and and defeated the invading army? What if this little town is shaking in their shoes because this army is advancing, uh, finds out that there's this great mighty king that they really didn't even know, kind of intercepts this army and defeats it? Um, What does that little town need to know at that point? It doesn't need advisors. It needs messengers. It needs messengers. And you know, when the Greek talks about messengers, it's angelos, and it means angels. It means people, uh, it can be angels, it can be pastors, it can be preachers, it can be Christians that are preaching. And these messengers are not saying, hey, here, give me some advice. The angels are showing up that Christmas night, and they're not saying to the shepherd, hey, guys, let me just give you some, some advice here. No, they're proclaiming. And you know, when the angels show up that Christmas night, it's not just angels playing harps and singing. The, the, the words that are used there in the original describes a military display of military might. It's like, it's a, it's a rank and order. It's the lining up of the military. It is, it is a very militaristic word. And, and this town doesn't need advice. It just needs, it needs messengers. That what? That the king has intercepted the army the invading army, and you are safe, and you're rescued, and you're saved. And so that's the first thing. You know, we don't need advice in Christmas. We don't need more advice. We don't need spiritual advice. We just need, we need people to tell us, what has God done for me? And then I can make decisions in my life that it's finished. And that I can't save myself, but Christ saves, can only Christ can save me. Number two, you know, a Christmas, the Christmas story is not a, it's not one of these stories where the moral, or the moral of the story is, you know, when you read a story, like when I read my, to my son a story, you know, like there's Thomas the Train. It's funny how kids, you see all the philosophy, and I'm just, this is what messes me up when I read kids' books. I just get all caught up in the philosophy of the book, like, you know, Thomas the Train. He, you know, he could do it because he thought he could do it, you know. And just the, on a, such a young level, we're teaching our kids, like, just levels of achievement that, you know, it's just so interesting. It's a, it, I don't know if it's healthy sometimes. Maybe it's good, but... Um, you know, Christmas is not a moral of the story. It's really a de- declaration of the finished work. Um, you know, it's really, a, it's a, really a, an account of what actually has happened. And there's no moral of the story here. You know, when you look at the nativity scene, you're not seeing something and you say, you know, the moral of the story of that nativity scene is, you're really saying that Christ was born really in our wreck, in our poverty. And this is the gospel. You know, like, so every other religion in many churches when they talk about um, salvation, um, they talk about it sometimes as advice. And it's what you need to do. But Christ says here, I am spiritual reality itself. And you could never come up to me, therefore I had to come down to you. And that's really great news. And that's where rest starts. When I just think about my future, when I, you know, as a young person, as an older person, wherever I'm at, as an older person, I think as an older person, you know, like you can start thinking about, my gosh, what's going to happen? Am I going to have any money? Like in 10 years, is this economy going to be so broke? You know, and I think that this fear could come in. Who's going to take care of me when I get older? Sometimes when you see stories, you know, about people that are just in a place in their life where they can't take care of themselves anymore. And you could look at that and you could say, you know, what's going to happen to me? I think that fear can come in. But I really love promise of the word that he that's begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. What God has begun... In my, in, my kid, in my son's life, in my children's life, he's going to be faithful to complete it. What God has begun in my relationship, he's going to be faithful to complete it. 
And then number three, and this is the part, I really love this part. Um, the genealogy of Christ here is not just a story about who begat who. You know, if you read the King James here, it's a really hard part to go through. I mean, it's just a lot of begats. And, and I think it's more like a resume. I think when we think about a resume, when you're applying for a job or where you're trying to put yourself out there and, and just get some respect and just, and just really go for that opportunity to, to get a better status in life, um, you're really going to work on your resume. I remember the first time I made my resume, you know, and you just like, you're just putting stuff in there and you sound like you're the smartest person on the planet. <laughs> That's what you want your resume to look like. Like you associate with only the best people. You know, your resume, you just want to have like, you know, only the references in there that are just going to give you, you know, high praise and like, oh yeah, hire that guy. He's great. Or hire that person. But you know, the resume here of Christ is really a resume of mercy. Um, it's a story here. Um, and I love how Matthew, Matthew being the tax collector, being the guy he was, he does not, he does not tweak and pick and choose about the genealogy there. He's putting all the dirty stuff. He's putting everything in there. Like he says here, you know, like, you know, uh, the wife of David, you know, Uriah's wife, right? He had to put that little thing in there, like, as like a, as like, you know, like, this, is, this was who David was. He murdered a man's wife. I mean, murdered a man's, uh, I'm sorry, murdered a wife's husband so that she, he could take uh, his wife. I mean, that is, that's King David. That's, that is, you know. And, and the genealogy here is, is not something that like we would do. I mean, um, look at this. There are, five, there are five women listed in the genealogy of Christ. And, and one writer put it this way. They're all mothers of Jesus. And, and someone could say, you know, like in the Jewish culture, women had really no great place. Uh, they were not allowed to be witnesses in, in court. Uh, they were just really basically so badly treated. Yet in a lot of ways, these were just, these were women that had just high profile. There was Ruth, there's Rahab, there's Tamar. Um, these, were, these were, you know, Tamar was, you know, Tamar and, and, and Rahab, these were women that just were not great people. They were, they were considered prostitutes or they were women that seduced people. And Ruth was a Moabitess. She was, she was just someone that was not genetic. She was not ethnically, you know, great. And she was not really accepted. Actually, they were all considered unclean. These are people in Jesus's genealogy. These are people in Jesus's resume. This is something the first gospel of, the, of all the gospels, the first book of the New Testament, the first chapter of the first book of the, of the New Testament, it's all about these. Oh my gosh, you had to bring up Rahab. You had to bring up Tamar. You had to bring up Ruth. Why did you have to do that right at the beginning of the New Testament? The story of Christ. And you know something? You look at these people and the Jewish law, and you know what? There's so many laws today, like the social law, the religious law, the economic laws that we live in in our culture. Oh, don't go near that person. Don't associate with that person because they're going to mess your reputation up. If you hang out with that person, you know what that's going to do about what people think about you? You know, you want to have, have great opportunity in your life. You want to have some doors open up. Don't hang out with Tamar. Don't hang out with Ruth. Don't even mention that Rahab was in your genealogy because these people were considered unholy, unacceptable. And when we talk about Jewish laws, we have them really in our culture today. Like, you know, maybe someone is at a certain place sociologically, or maybe someone is in a place where maybe they're not considered very bright, or they have maybe some mental or some physical drawbacks. And um, we don't think that they're necessary. You know, we're thinking, if I, if I spend time with that person, 
I'm going to get infected. You know, and right now we're living in this virus, this viral, viral society where people are thinking like, I can't be around not only people that are sick, but I become very selective about the people that we hang out with. But Jesus is, is a man that was not afraid of this. He was not afraid to get, he was not afraid to get contaminated with lepers, with people that were publicans. That, mean, that meant that they were just people that were, were townspeople that were just considered low lives or something. Jesus was around. He was not ashamed to be around them. I think, you know, like sometimes we're around people and we're like, gosh, I just hope nobody in the church sees me. You know, just nobody nobody sees me from the church that I'm with this person. And Jesus was with these people and he was not worried about getting getting contaminated by their virus of sin or whatever they were in. Because Jesus, what he had was so much greater. His holiness and his grace and his power like could come into a person's life and change that person. Rather, his holiness, and one writer puts it this way, his, his holiness infects us with his righteousness. When we believe on Jesus Christ, when we spend time with Christ in prayer, when we just get on our face before God and just don't, and there, I love, sometimes I'll just do this. I'll just get on my face before God and I say, Lord, I'm not going to ask, I'm not asking for anything. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to give you this task list. I'm not going to be panic prayers, which we do sometimes. I'm just going to just, I'm just going to lay out before you and just say, Lord, you are my creator. You are my, you are my righteousness. You are the almighty God. And just, I, I just get before you and I just am silent. Habakkuk 2 verse 20. Love that verse. I was in Ukraine and I remember not being married and just trying to get the work of getting things going there. And I just had all these ideas in my head. And I was just thinking, like, what do we got to do here? And all the things that we're facing, a government that really didn't like us. And a, the, the, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that was just so against us being there. They were making phone calls behind our backs when we were trying to set things up. And, you know, these, these, uh, these halls that we were having, trying to have these events in would cancel out on us last minute because they would get a phone call from somebody. And I just remember being so worried about like, Lord, are you going to bless this? Are you in this? Am I going to go back to the States, you know, with my tail between my legs and just like, okay, that was, I don't know what that was, but, you know, are we going to fail here? I just remember being so worried and, and I was just going through, you know, I was reading something in Habakkuk and I got to Habakkuk 2 verse 20 and it said, all, let all the earth be silent before God because he is in his holy temple. And I read that. I just remember the presence of the Lord coming into my room, you know, as this 26-year-old, you know, not knowing what God's going to do and just worried, living in my little worm, kind of little my little perspective of, of life and just thinking, God, what are you going to do? And I remember the presence of God just coming in. I just had nothing to say. I said, Lord, you are great. You're mighty. You're powerful. And I think this is what these, these men did at the, at the foot of the manger, at this water trough, at this place where these, where these animals fed from. And, and they just humbled themselves. They got on their face before God. They got, their, they got on their knees before Jesus. They got on their knees before the humility of God. They got on their knees before the weakness and the, and the humility and the, and, the, and the smallness of who God appeared to be. I love that scene. God didn't come in large and in charge. Like we do that. Like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right into that situation and I'm going to deal with it. I mean, we got to do that sometimes. We got to step into things. We got to just like, okay, get on the phone, start calling people, tell these people like, what are you doing? And just start like, you know, throwing our weight around and, and our authority. And we should do that. We should take charge of circumstances. But then there's times where we should just get on our face and say, God, 
Like, I'm just going to get on my face before the humility and the smallness of God, the smallness of God. And you know, the weakness of God is, is mightier and more powerful. It's more wise than, 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 than the wisdom of men, just the foolishness of God. God can just make a joke or something and just the world would reel from its, just its wisdom and its just intelligence. And I think that Habakkuk 2, verse 20, you know, let all the earth be silent. Can you imagine that? We were in this, it's this ranch and, and it was just silent. It was absolute silence. And I thought, you know, Imagine the entire planet just being silent before God. Imagine just as a family getting on our knees, just being silent before the Lord. Imagine as a pastor or a pastor's wife or, or a child or a teenager, like, God, I don't know how to pray. And we're just, people know how to pray. And by the way, in January, Mike and I were talking about something. I would just love to just take that month and just dedicate it to prayer and fasting. And I would really like to ask the church, like, guys, let's do this. Let's, as a church, as we're just kicking off in this area, Let's just get on our face before God. Let's just say, let's put away some of our, you know, in America, we just have so much entertainment. We're so blessed, you know, and it's so amazing. I love living here. I love living in the state of Texas. But if we could just put that away and just seek the face of God as a church and say, Lord, what do you want to do in Magnolia? What do you want to do in Pinehurst? What do you want to do in the woodlands? What do you want to do in these little, these, I almost said villages, these little neighborhoods around us? Like, what do you want to do, God? Can you move and just listen to God? And, and, and just and to wait before the Lord, get quiet before the Lord in that manger. And there's this little baby just laying there, maybe he's asleep, and getting so quiet before God. And just taking the month of, of, of January 2022 and saying, Lord, just like the firstborn belong to the Lord, just like our first fruits, our tithes and our offerings begin to belong to the Lord. And, and I'm sorry, I always forget to take the offering here. I need help to remember that. But like the first fruits of our life belong to God. And if we could take our first month of the year and just say, Lord, I'm just giving this to you. However that fasting looks like, we can talk about some ideas. However that prayer looks like, um, however that looks, maybe we can be meeting here or meeting in our homes. But pray and seek the face of the Lord because every great work, I'm just the kind of guy that I just don't want to do the status quo. Does that make sense? I don't want to be up here every Sunday just, all right, you know, this is what we got to do. Here's some great advice. And okay, I'll see you in... Seven days. I'll see you next Sunday. I just am like the person that I would really like to see the Lord work. I'd really like to see God change lives. I'd like to see people. I mean, I just heard this morning before the service, like um, someone that just shared with me an amazing turnaround in their marriage. It was like so amazing. I'm so happy to hear it because I've been praying for this person. And this is such a great answer to prayer. An absolute turnaround. It's so awesome. And I think that sometimes we just, we're praying and then we just stop praying because we don't see anything. And then, and then the answers start coming. And we stopped praying a long time ago, but the answers start coming. They're coming of wave after wave. And I just want to take the month of January and just say, Lord, can you do something? Can you do something in our lives? Can you do something in our businesses? Can you do something in our kids' lives? Can you do something in, in Magnolia? Can you do something in this area where we would see the hand of God, God move and that, Lord, that you would pack out the house of God. You would pack out prayer meetings, pack out our Bible school, Pack out our times of prayer. Just pack out because the Lord is on the move. And you know something? When we get quiet before the Lord, you know, when you say the, 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 that the, the Lord Almighty is in the tabernacle in Habakkuk 2 verse 20, it doesn't mean that God only lives in the church. It means that God, where's the tabernacle today? The New Testament tabernacle. It's you and I. You and I are the tabernacle of the Lord. And you know something? When we are in each other's presence, you know, I think sometimes we just have to, 
exercise just sacred respect that God is in that person, no matter what we think of a person, no matter what they've done to us, how, many they've, how much they've failed, or maybe how their personality we don't like, or what they did to us in business or whatever. And if that person's a believer, then like, just get on our, we don't have to do it in front of them because <laughs> they may not know what's going on. But just in our heart, just get on our knees before the God that's in them. Let all the earth, let all the noise and all the confusion and all the, all the labors of men and all the, all, the, all the striving and all the vanity that Solomon talks about and let that all stop and get on its knees for the Lord is in his holy tabernacle. He is in us. He is in us. And we can believe that. We can trust him. And... And then in closing, I just want to say this, is that in Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race, another, another race, whatever, moral and immoral, we are all as equals before Christ. I mean, the cross of Jesus Christ has made us all equal. There's no one better in any level than anyone else. We're equally sinful and lost and equally accepted and loved. We are in Christ. And if, we, if, you're, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ in your life, then you're in a place where you're, you are infected with the righteousness of God. You're infected with the power of God. Um, you are, something has been given to you and I that is just so much more powerful than what the world can give. And so I just want to recap. I just want to recap three, three things that we said in the message. Before I do that, I just want to say this, is that when you look at the genealogy of Christ, it is just oozing with the mercy of God. You're seeing people like these people that we read. You're seeing the power, you're seeing the mercy and the grace of God. Three things. Number one, Christmas shows us that Christianity is not good advice. It's, it's the best news. And number two, um, as messengers, you and I, whatever age we're at, we are, we are messages. And we don't tell people this is what you've got to do. We say rather, I'm here to tell you that the work is finished. Whatever, you know, like we were... Um, I was talking to somebody last week and I had never worked in the field of drug and alcohol or just substance abuse, um, like counseling. Oh, I was talking to a gentleman that was with us on the trip and I said, I've never, I, I've never studied like, like this man James Allen has. He really knows this stuff about counseling and I never really studied that. I remember like when we were in Ukraine, there was, an, there was a time when we had just a lot of guys coming in from Eastern Ukraine that were just running for their lives, running from gangs, running from just bad friends, and they were hooked on substance abuse. They were addicted. I remember praying, like, God, I don't know what to say to these guys. I mean, I'm not qualified to talk to these guys. I remember that just the Holy Spirit said, just preach Christ. Preach the finished work. Just preach new creation. Preach who they are in Christ. And don't, don't bring up, don't give them a program, just, just identity, identity, identity. And when we do that, we're, 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 t- we're not telling people to save themselves. We're actually stopping to try to save ourselves. And I think that when you and I are wrestling, and every one of us in this room, including myself, we have areas in our life that we wrestle with. There's stuff that we're wrestling with, and, and it's just a long battle. I mean, some things happen like that, right? And then there's other things we're just wrestling with for a long time. And you know something, one of the most victorious things that we can understand is when we say, Lord, you beat this sin already. You beat this 2,000 years ago. It is crucified. It is finished. And it's no longer who I am. And, and, and even though my experience is not reflecting that yet, it's true. It's true. It's true. Because that's who God is. Christ in us. And we're infected with the, we are, the, the, the righteousness of Christ is, is imputed to us. And we're no longer trying to qualify for that, 
that, that gift in the manger. We're just, we are what we are and we're loved by God. We are cherished by God. And when we look at people, and I love Matthew chapter nine, I'm going to finish here. Matthew chapter nine, you know, here's Jesus looking at the multitudes, right? And he has compassion. Now that's a powerful verse. I'll tell you why. Because we look at TV and we see the craziness of people all over the world, what we're doing. And we're looking at people sometimes, and I'm doing this sometimes, and we're thinking, what? These people are just ridiculous. They're so stupid. And I'm sitting there judging them, and like, they're terrible. And like, you know, who do these people think they are? And like, and then, and then, and then Matthew 9's come back, and, and, and it says that Jesus looked at the multitudes and had compassion. Jesus looks at these people that socially, economically, or whatever, religiously, we just reject. We're like, okay, that is just a waste of my time. And he looks at them and he just has compassion. Compassion means that God, and this is, if, you, if there's one thing you can remember about this message, and I, I, is this, is that compassion is not pity. It's not pity. Nobody needs pity because pity is just, oh, that's too bad and there's no action. Compassion is when I look beyond somebody's fault, when I look beyond somebody's mask, when I look beyond somebody's offense in my life, when I look beyond whatever the whatever is and I see a need. I see a need in their life. I can see brokenness. I can see, I can see a little kid in there that was abused, or I can see a little girl in there that just was rejected, or I just see somebody in there that is just wanting, that just needs God. And, and when we look at that, and it may take time to get you there, just pray like, Lord, give me insight in that person's life. And when we do that, we can look at that person's life and say, you know something? Like the narcissist, for example, and look at them and just say, like, I remember that. We, there was just this person in my, my wife and my life, and they were just narcissistic. They, and I just remember the, just the mental, like, oh, that person, what do they do? And we're just like, it just for hours, you just go in your head, like, you know, you're just looping like this until the compassion of Christ breaks through. And you just see something about that person, like, oh, my gosh, I, didn't believe, I did not know that that's what happened to that person. And compassion, compassion is not just, it's not just an emotion, but it's, it is something that causes us to pray or to act. And so, um, and then, you know, lastly, really here, it shows, number three, it shows that people who are excluded by culture and excluded by respectable society and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into Jesus's family. Don't be surprised about the people that God brings into the church. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, I, I just remember being in a church one time and somebody came into the church and it was just obvious what that person was all about and just people were like, uh, you know. And like Jesus would have just gone right to that person and not compromise, not, not give a place to something, but just really wanted to connect and just really target that person with the gospel. Because what, what we have, what we have is something that's given to us. We've received something. We've been contaminated, if I can use that word in a sacred way. We've been, we've been infused with something through contact contact with Christ. And that's how the Hebrew word Kadesh is used. It's something that can be, that becomes holy because of content. I mean, contact, not because of something that's done, but just because something, you know, the priest had to live in holiness because he was touching things in the, in the, in the tabernacle. When we've touched Christ and when we get on our knees before him and we say yes to Jesus and what happens is, is that something begins to take over our life, no matter where we're at, don't live in shame, don't withdraw from God. If you're having trouble in your life, if you're struggling, um, you know, your friends, your peers may, may really judge you. You may feel judged by people, but just draw near to God. Just draw near, draw near to that manger. Get on your face before the Lord, before the humility of God, and just say yes to Jesus and just see what God does. And I hope, 
I did a good job communicating what was on my heart this morning. But um, let's look at this season coming up that the Advent is really an Advent of, of great news and great joy, not just advice. It's powerful information. It's powerful communion with God. Amen. Let's close in prayer.